Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Thyroid cancer, who gets it and how do they know? Are there symptoms? Does having cancer mean your thyroid hormones are off? If you have low thyroid, could it become cancerous? What if you have high thyroid? Can somebody with thyroid cancer actually get treated in clinical trials? Well, we're going to find out today. Dr. Shane Morita, one of our frequent body show guests, I'm happy to have him back. He's an endocrine and cancer surgeon expert at Queens Medical Center, and he also is keeping in touch with the world of research through the UH Cancer Center. And he's here in the studio ready to tell us more about what's the latest in the diagnosis and management of thyroid cancer and how to find out more about how to treat this right here locally at home. Dr. Morita, welcome back to The Body Show. Hi. Thanks for coming on again. We've talked before about a lot, uh, different things, melanoma in particular. But, you know, September is a National Thyroid Cancer Awareness Month. And a lot of people don't realize that you could actually right now, if you wanted to, granted, hopefully you're not driving, keep your hands on the wheel. But if you wanted to, you could actually feel your own thyroid. That it's such that you can, it's a type of organ that you can actually feel in your neck. And if there's a lump or a bump there, you could be the one to identify it. How might someone examine their thyroid? Now, nobody's going to be an expert, but if they were feeling in their neck themselves, what should they feel for? Where are they touching? Well, you know, I always tell my patients um, to who, know, who have nodules who keep an eye on it, for example, would look in the mirror, um, sort of raise your chin, so tilt your neck back or head back. Okay, so don't do it when you're driving. <laughs> Probably not. Okay. And um, just swallow, you know, there's your Adam's apple, that the, uh, protrusion at the, the structure in front of your um, your neck. But just on the side of, side of it, um, as you are swallowing, just feel for any nodules, any, any kind of lumps or bumps. And especially, um, again, try to look, look straight ahead. But you really have to uh, tilt your head back to really emphasize the, the thyroid. So you should be feeling like soft and squishy and spongy. You don't want to feel things hard like marbles or peas or, or anything like that. Correct. Or anything just that protrudes that, you know, that sort of sticks out. Well, because, you know, and right before we started, we were talking a little bit. Uh, one of your son's favorite shows, Flip or Flop on HGTV, there's the guy Tarek. It's Tarek and Christina. And he actually, you know, there's a nurse who was watching his show on a marathon and said, that guy's got a mass. And she was the one who somehow communicated to his producer, he's got a mass, he needs to have that biopsy, and it turned out to be thyroid cancer. So she was watching him, so you could actually potentially see this in someone else, depending on the angle in which you're looking at them. She was medically trained and noticed this mass and actually helped him figure out he had a cancer. Now, not everybody is going to, I mean, now it's funny, every time I watch the show, I stare at his neck, like, was this the before or after? Would I have noticed this lump? Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things where this can be something that someone can observe of you. You can also observe it yourself. Not always will you be able to do that, but everyone can do that little quick check, go in the mirror, tilt forward, and or lift their chin up and kind of drink something or swallow and see if they notice anything. Right, and not all nodules, the thyroid nodules are cancer. Only about 5% are. So just because you have a nodule or growth that you detect, Don't freak out. that doesn't mean that okay. you have cancer. It means you should go get it checked out. Correct. Get an ultrasound and potentially get a biopsy. So let's talk about the thyroid in general. Why do we have one? Well, the thyroid is basically a gland that's important for energy and metabolism. So, uh, you know, if you, if, 
if it's not functioning well, you may feel fatigued. Uh, you may lose your hair. Um, if you have an overproduction of too much thyroid hormone, such as if you have, for example, Graves' disease, which is a disorder that attacks your own thyroid gland, what we call autoimmune, you release too much thyroid hormone, you could be very jittery, you could have difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, and lose a lot of weight. So the, the thyroid is very important just in overall with our metabolism and, and energy. So there's sort of a tight range of normal. So when your thyroid's going too fast, you could have all these symptoms of like you're running around all the time and your heart's beating too fast, et cetera. And when your thyroid's too slow, you might feel really sluggish and tired. Correct. Thyroid problems, whether it be fast or slow, are fairly common, but thyroid cancer is not necessarily associated with thyroid problems, meaning going too fast or going too slow. Correct. In, in fact, most patients who have thyroid cancer are what we call euthyroid, so their blood tests are completely normal. So there's no blood test that detects thyroid cancer per se. We, we can check a, a thyroid protein after surgery to see if it's, you know, it's completely eradicated, completely gone, but there's no blood test that one can go and say, okay, do I have thyroid, you know, thyroid cancer? Blood tests do not tell us. So the blood test may tell those people who do the testing for thyroid if the function is normal. Correct. Overactive or underactive. Correct. Right. But it's not necessarily a cancer screening test. Yes. So how would you screen for thyroid cancer? Could you? Well, you know, a, a lot of it is, comes from physical exam if you notice a, a lump. If doing that swallow, I feel the lump. Or you go see your doctor, they feel a lump in your neck. And getting an ultrasound if there's a if there's a lump, and the ultrasound will give characteristics of the nodule. So not all nodules even need to be biopsied. If they look uh, very smooth without any type of what we call calcifications or increased vascularity, they don't have a lot of blood to that. You don't necessarily need to biopsy it if it's small. So, um, but you want to make sure that you don't ignore it. You know, if you do feel a lump, to go in and be evaluated. So in this case, size really does mean something. So the size of the nodule could have an effect. And you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, blood vessels, whether or not there's blood vessels near that. You mentioned if there's calcium and calcium that's actually in this particular right. nodule. We call it calcifications or increased vascularity. So not necessarily that there's a blood vessel in it, but uh, like a large blood vessel, but small you know, sort of blood vessels Lots of that are ones. feeding, okay. feeding the tumor. Correct. So certain characteristics would make you think, hey, this is a problem. And other characteristics Correct. may make you go, nah, you know, this looks like nothing. If somebody has a nodule that they're told needs to be monitored because it doesn't look like it's nothing, but it doesn't look like it needs a biopsy, how often are things like that monitored? Uh, it, it can be as you know as as close as six months. It could be a, a you know a year. It really depends on on the size of the the nodule. If it's a small nodule, less than a centimeter, I don't think you need to you know do it in six months. It can, you can wait a little bit and. But you always want to correlate with the physical exam to see if there's any changes. So you need to counsel your patients regarding that. And an ultrasound is a really good way to measure it. Correct. It's non-invasive. Um, it can be reproducible. There's no radiation exposure to it. And those are important things, particularly when we talk about how you treat thyroid cancer with radioactive iodine. So, so we've talked a little bit about thyroid itself. We know what it does in the body. It helps our body with metabolism, helps us to keep everything going kind of on an even keel, Correct. enough energy for ourselves during the day, not so much it keeps us up at night. We know that we can feel it ourselves or even look at it in the mirror and see that there's a problem. 
And if there is, we could have that evaluated. And you mentioned go in for a physical exam by your doctor. Make sure if there's any problem, go ahead and get some type of ultrasound or some type of imaging studies. How often do people actually have thyroid cancer out of all of the lesions, shall we say, or nodules that are present in the thyroid? Is thyroid cancer common or is it pretty rare? Well, in in general, it's a uh it's common in women. You know, if you look at, you know, it's expected this year that about 65,000 people in the U.S. will, be, will get thyroid cancer. Uh, 50,000, about 50,000 will be will be females. If you look at, I think I had mentioned before with, with nodules, if you look at, say, 100 nodules, uh, five, five of them will have thyroid cancer. So it's about five, five out of every 100 nodules. And so it's not a huge number of people, but enough to really pay attention. Correct. It's a top five in in women. Okay. So something that women should be concerned about, particularly because you mentioned that Mm -hmm. ratio. You have 50,000 women every year out of a total of 65,000 diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Now, is all thyroid cancer the same? Are there some types that are more concerning than others? You know, they're not all the same, and that's a good question because sometimes thyroid cancer gets lumped into, you know, just this very, the quote-unquote good cancer to have, I, th- I think. Okay, is there really any good cancer to have? Yeah, I, you know, you've heard people mention that it's a good cancer to have, and I'm not sure of any cancer that I think that would be good. But I'm not uh, volunteering for it, but I can see when compared to something like pancreatic cancer where it's often diagnosed later that, you know, okay, there might be there might be a, a, some sense to that. Okay. Sure, so to answer your question, so... There's different subtypes. There's, it's usually a carcinoma. It's not lymphoma. There's different types of cancer within the thyroid. There's different types of cancer that can spread to thyroid, such as kidney cancer, although that's rare. But if you look at thyroid carcinoma in general, papillary is the most common, about 80, 80%, 85%. Then it's follicular. Then it's herthal cell, also known as oncocytic. Medullary, and that has more of a, uh, a lot of it has a hereditary component. Um, and, and the last but not least is anaplastic, which is very aggressive. Um, and, and the reason why it's aggressive is all anaplastic thyroid cancer are categorized as stage four, and it can spread to other organs and as well as be directly invade the, the trachea and other parts of the neck. So anaplastic describes these cells as just being totally crazy, going haywire, just Correct. multiplying all over and eating through other tissues. That's Correct. like a really bad kind to have. You mentioned the most common, though, is papillary at about Correct. 80, 85 percent. The different types of thyroid cancer, are they ba- is that designation based on the type of thyroid cell that is affected? Well, the papillary follicular oncocytic, those are all um, well, based out of the follicular. There's different cells within the thyroid. Um, medullary is a little uh, different because it produces a different horm- hormone. Um, but Typically, uh, it's from the thyroid follicle um, is is the cell of origin for the more common thyroid cancers. And so when somebody gets that diagnosis, if you catch it early, what is the survivability of something like a papillary thyroid carcinoma? Oh, over 95%. Very good in general. Um, And, you know, thyroid cancer is really the only cancer that, that being papillary and follicular that have a staging based on age. So if you're less than 45, you cannot, there's no such thing as stage four papillary or follicular thyroid cancer. Even if it goes to your bones or lungs, the outcome is still relatively good that it can only be stage one or stage two. 
So and that's unique to thyroid cancer. That is unique because often we think about staging based on if it's locally invasive, if it went to lymph nodes, if it went to other parts of your body. But if you get this when you're young because of its rate of survival or maybe the ability to cure it, no matter how far it's spread, you have really good odds. Correct. But I, I will say that that will probably be change in the future, I think, as as um, as we look at, um, you know, we have a little bit lot more data to analyze, but I think that will change. Um, again, I just want to emphasize that we, although a lot has been published on, and even recently, uh, I think we were discussing earlier, but uh, European study published in the New England Journal of Medicine was talking about, you know, the overdiagnosis and even the overtreatment of thyroid cancer. I think it's important to really look at you know, it's important to look at the population that you're in, uh, that you live, in the community that you live, that, uh, w- you know, there's different factors, I think, that p- play a role in, in eth- ethnicities. I mean, um, you know, those studies didn't really look at the so-called the genomics of, of thyroid cancer. And I can tell you there's d- different genes that have been shown to be much, that if the patient's tumor dis- uh, displays it, it can be a more aggressive course, irrespective of size. So, Well, when we think about cancer, I think sometimes we have to sort of take a step back and say, cancer cells are our own body cells that did something strange. So that every cancer cell has some of the genetics, the characteristics of a normal cell in your body, but something changed. We don't know what that is that made them start to have some type of genetic mutation. There could be all different variety of influences that cause that. That's really been the golden ticket. That's what everyone's been trying to figure out. What makes that sudden transformation of your body cells to start exhibiting these genetic mutations? Well, again, one one thing that we know is a risk factor um, for, for example, papillary, papillary is ra- head and neck radiation. So I've had patients, for example, who adolescents, uh, young adults got treated for lymphoma, and they had radiation to the head and neck area, and they developed thyroid cancer later on. So, you know, receiving radiation to the head and neck area is a risk factor for developing thyroid cancer. So that's the way of radiation causes changes, just like how when we talk about melanoma, and 85% is due to UV radiation, really sun exposure, causing changes in in the DNA and, and you know, so that's one way that it happens correct. is radiation exposure now. As opposed to melanoma, it wouldn't necessarily be sunlight exposure for your thyroid, but it could be radiation, like you mentioned, from lymphoma treatment. Sure. It could be environmental exposure, I mean, to people who might have been exposed to radiation from a variety of different areas, whether it be, you know, Chernobyl nuclear radiation or other things that went on in the Pacific many years ago. Or even now, we I mean, people are aware, I mean, you know, Chernobyl happened in 1986, but now, you know, we have to I'm look. We, we made the five. The you know the, we just pa- had the five year anniversary of Fukushima, Fukushima so exactly. you know there's a lot of concern about, about that in the future. Absolutely, because anyone exposed to that level of radiation, what would be their risk? I'm that old that I I don't think Chernobyl was that long ago. Wow. Okay, but I mean truthfully, the radiation exposure it can actually affect you. So that may be one of those risk factors that can be somewhat modifiable if you can avoid having radiation to the head or neck. It's funny because I think about when I was in medical school. 
whenever we were doing x-rays for patients, they would give you this, this lead shield that you would wear because you didn't want to expose your body to radiation. And only more recently did have they really started to use this little tiny little neck collar one, which is meant to protect the thyroid sure. from radiation. Because even in a hospital x-ray department, if you have a lot of x-rays, there may be radiation exposure, particularly for staff. So that would be one of the reasons that people should be concerned. So we know that radiation exposure can cause these genetic abnormalities. And then all of a sudden, the tumor cells just keep growing. They don't stop. They just take over and and invade either local tissues or start to spread elsewhere. What is the treatment for early stage thyroid cancer? We're talking maybe the papillary follicular or the oncocytic, where it's, it's caught early, has a fairly good chance of survival when you treat it. How do we treat it? Do we just take out the whole thyroid? You what know, do we do? I, I think the trend, you know, there's, there's been a paradigm shift. Initially, uh, many years ago, there was a trend more towards a, what we call unilateral lobectomy that was championed by a surgeon named Blake Cady. And then we went back to, uh, we went to a more aggressive doing a, what we call total thyroidectomy, removing the entire thyroid. Now, there's the pendulum is shifting for small cancers, of, you know, less than two centimeters for sure of maybe even going to a lobectomy and doing over one size. And in some instances now with very small thyroid cancers being detected less than one centimeters, there's even some discussion about, you know, and we had discussed this earlier about active surveillance because, you know, a lot of the the large studies say maybe you don't need to have aggressive surgery up up front. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know of any patient that may want to say, well, there's some cancer in me, just leave it alone, unless they had some prohibitive comorbidities, you know, a ba- bad heart or maybe uh, just, you know, advanced age. So I think I what I always tell um, my patients and my, my colleagues, it's really it's an individual, uh, you know, decision that's made that you ha- not everybody is, is going to behave like the textbook or the algorithm that's in the NCCN guidelines. And so just take everybody as an individual, look at everything. And those guidelines, the NCCN stands for? Uh, the National uh, uh, Comprehensive Cancer uh, Network. So that those are specific guidelines yeah. on how to treat things based on years of research and what we think things will go like, but there's there's certainly no guarantee, no crystal ball. Correct. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, internal medicine doc at Straub Medical Center, here with my friend, Dr. Shane Morita. He is an endocrine and cancer surgery specialist from Queens Medical Center, also is working at the UH Cancer Center as well. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about thyroid function, thyroid cancer. Can you live without one if you have surgery for it? And where does iodine fit into all of this? Because it really all does play a very important role. It tells a whole story on how the body works together to to make sure that we stay as normal and healthy as possible. Now, as always, our show is your show. And if you want to join us, if you have a history of thyroid cancer or you have concerns about it, you can always do so at 941-3689. Toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. On the next Humankind... The Environmental Working Group analyzed some data, and they found that if everyone in the United States ate no meat or cheese one day a week, it would be the same as not driving 91 billion miles. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for the Diet Climate Connection on Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. 
This week on Invisibilia, we look at personality. We are very quiet. Outspoken. Introverted. Conscientious. And this idea we have... Outgoing. Hardworking. Sensitive. That it explains what happens in our lives. Loving. Open. Tough. Agreeable. Is that really the right way to think? That iconic story is upside down wrong. That's on the next Invisibilia from NPR. Wednesday evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Shane Morita. He's an endocrine and cancer surgeon expert at Queen's Medical Center. He also has a post at the UH Cancer Center. And today we're talking about thyroid cancer. September is National Thyroid Cancer Awareness Month. And this is the type of cancer that can be caught even by you at home if you notice some type of a lump or a bump in your neck area that potentially could be serious. Now, most often it's not. Almost all the time it isn't. But it's one of those things where people could actually potentially find it themselves. There's very few organs in the body where we can actually feel the organ when we're touching from the outside. And luckily, that may have be part of what leads to the fact that if caught early enough, it can be treated. Now, if you or a loved one has ever had thyroid cancer, we'd love to hear from you, get your expertise on how your treatment went and how you felt during the process. Remember, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Now, right before the break, Dr. Marito, we were talking a little bit about how you treat thyroid cancer. And you mentioned that, you know, it used to be that you take part of it out, then the pendulum swung, take out the whole thyroid, and now it's kind of swinging back towards maybe take part of it out. Can people live without their thyroid? Yes, they can, but they need they do need to take thyroid hormone. And again, our body can't function without thyroid hormone. So there is a pill that it can take. Um, you mentioned about, you know, we discussed about um, different options regarding the thyroid itself. But if you do have spread to the lymph nodes, you need to take out the entire thyroid. So that's that's really important to know because leaving, you know, the other half is not going to be helpful if you, it's already spread to the lymph node. It's not going to make additional uh, therapies such as iodine that we'll d- discuss a little bit later as effective. So in some cases, you might be able to spare part of your thyroid. But the good news is that if you have to have your entire thyroid out, there is a medicine that can replace the function of your thyroid Correct. and make your body still feel active and healthy and not have any of those symptoms of no thyroid function. We need some type of thyroid hormone in order to live. And that's unique. Not all organs have that capacity that you could do something to replace their function. Certainly, it doesn't mean people should just have thyroids taken out for no reason. But if they need to, the good news is, hey, you know what? We have this medication that can help you. When people take medicine for their thyroid to if they have their thyroid taken out or even if they have low thyroid, how often should they have that thyroid function monitored to see if it's going well? You know, I think that's variable depending on, um, you, you, you know, I think the, the dosage sometimes can be very challenging for everyone. I mean, those uh, numbers that are used as what we call reference range range for what's normal and what's not normal, I mean, some that, that, that sort of is a bell curve. So you can have people on other ends of the extreme. So I think it can be as, as often as a two, three months or it can be, you know, a little, little later than that, um, you know, it can be six months 
uh, definitely annually. Sure, so that we can periodically check a blood test, see if you're taking the medicine and if you are at the right dose. You know, I've seen quite a few folks that they may not have had thyroid cancer, but they've had low thyroid. And as they get older, if they forget their medicine, because they're getting a little forgetful, I can tell that by looking at their blood test and then hopefully encourage them, remind them, get their family involved, because really you need to have some thyroid hormone function in order to survive. Now, the thyroid produces these hormones, and one of the other key things that is involved in thyroid hormone production is iodine. Some people might hear about iodine and realize that when people don't have enough, they can develop something like a goiter, which is a larger amount of thyroid tissue that is not functioning well because it doesn't have what it needs to produce the hormone. What is a goiter and how does iodine fit into any of this? So the, a goiter basically is an enlarged thyroid. It doesn't mean that it's 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 cancerous, but I will tell you that, um, I mean, having t- taken, I mean, just re- even recently, I mean, taking care of a gentleman that had a goiter going into his chest, so way below where his his collarbone. So that goiter can go Absolutely. a lot of different There's places. a potential space called the mediastinum that it can just go in and, and cause a lot of problems, affect people's airway, and, and, and really be difficult to detect without imaging sometimes. So, uh, But iodine, you know, in, in third world countries where there's iodine deficiency, here we don't see it because we have so much we have iodine, iodine salt and, and whatnot. But yeah, we definitely have too much salt we around. We definitely have a lot ooh, of salt. I mean, so if you, when you have to tell patients to go on a low iodine diet to prepare them for their uh, radioactive iodine that we can uh, discuss a little bit later, um, you, you'll find that there's iodine iodine's everywhere. So um, in those third world countries, though, when there's a deficiency in iodine, they can have these very large goiters that um, can cause a lot of problems. So a goiter means that you have less iodine available and your thyroid is responding to that deficiency. Or it could be that's one cause of a goiter. It could be just from, you could have a goiter from, say, uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disorder that attacks the thyroid and the thyroid is basically scarred and, and reacting by developing nodules. So... There's different mechanisms of goiter, but um, it is quite common here. I see that, in, in especially in our Filipino population. You see goiter? Correct. Okay. And not all, goiter does not necessarily mean cancer. Correct. But if our thyroid needs iodine, why would we treat thyroid cancer with radioactive iodine? So what... So the, the way I always tell patients is we can get, so when we do surgery for thyroid cancer, we can take out the gross disease and even with the lymph nodes, but we may not see all the microscopic uh, remnant thyroid tissue or even thyroid cancer. And so what we want to do is we actually essentially restrict iodine for you know a few weeks and then give a dose of iodine that's a lot, you know, a, a high dose um, to destroy any remaining thyroid cells. If our, if our body already has some iodine in it already, then the dose that we give may not quite, uh, may not destroy the, the remaining thyroid cells that we want. So the idea is that your thyroid needs iodine. And if you're supposed to have your thyroid out because you have cancer, because they found something that need, requires thyroid removal, how can you get all the little microscopic bits? Right. And the only way we know that you can get that is if you deplete your body of iodine, your body's saying, give me some, give me some, particularly your thyroid saying, give me it. And if you have a couple of those cells left, you give this radioactive iodine. So the thyroid says, iodine, yay, grabs it, pulls it into those thyroid cells. And, it, and because it's radioactive, it's going to destroy the cell. Correct. 
Correct. So the purpose of doing the radioactive iodine treatment is to actually destroy thyroid cells that you don't want to be there. Correct. So that's how that process really relates. If you have a deficiency of iodine, that's a cause of a goiter. If you're getting radioactive iodine, it's because we want to kill that thyroid cell because it could be related to the ones that are doing bad things. Correct. Causing the cancer. How, when we talk about some of the newer treatments for different types of cancers, we hear about the malignant melanoma treated with some genetic types of uh, medications that are usually targeting specific mutations. Do we have that same capacity when we're talking about thyroid? Well, you know, the two FDA-approved drugs right now to treat um, really the the thyroid cancer that's very difficult is radioactive iodine insensate. So when it doesn't respond to iodine... So you can take that iodine radioactively, and the thyroid cells are like, nope, we don't want it, not even going to do that. So And that's typically found, detected later when after you give the radioactive iodine, you know, you see, um, you know, increased growth of, of disease is uh, these agents really have work on different pathways within the thyroid cells to destroy it. Now, there's one I will tell you that's become, uh, there is some some data, a small study that showed it, it's vemurafenib, actually that was FDA approved for melanoma in 2011, has sh- is showing some promise if you have the BRAF uh, mutation, and that's within the, the tumor itself, typically for patients with papillary or follicular that have not, again, become not responsive to radioactive iodine. And so it was a small study, but it did show some some benefit. And it may be something where, you know, it'll benefit more patients in the future. So what we're finding is if we can target this genetic mutation, treatments that have been developed to address that particular genetic mutation are now why we hear about treatments for malignant melanoma, which is an entirely different cancer than thyroid, which is an entirely different cancer than lung or colon or something else. Why would some of these medications be applicable in different areas? The genetics of oncology is this fascinating field that I really think is is not only here presently, but there's so much more we have to discover. Because if we can find out the genetic mutation, have a couple of different targeted mutations that we can treat, then instead of treating cancer as a specific individual type, like all thyroid cancer treated one way, all melanoma treated one way, if we can find that common theme that can really make a huge difference when we talk about the future of cancer treatment. Right. The thing that I think the point that's really important is that just because you have a mutation, say BRAF, you know, there's different types of mutations. We've talked about uh, sort of somatic in germline. Somatic is acquired mutation, but within a somatic mutation, uh, not to be technical, but there's driver mutations and passenger mutations. And what that mean, what I mean is that if it's a driver mutation, that would be a very mu- important mutation that actually drives, you know, the, the growth of the cancer cell. I mean, just because you have a mutation and you target it with a drug doesn't mean that it's going to make a big difference because maybe that is more of a sort passenger. of a bison, you yeah. know, like a passenger Makes a lot on of sense. for the ride, but mm-hmm. not the one that's really, you know, determining the rate of growth. So th- that's why it, it may not work for all different types of cancers, even if you have that specific uh, target. That kind of makes takes it a notch up, makes it a little more complicated. So you may have the mutation, but if you're in the passenger seat, you're not in charge of where that car is going. Correct. Maybe that mutation is not the one that's really making a, you know, s- sort of leading the growth. So um, that's why cancer is very difficult to treat sometimes um, when we have so many different 
terminology, different so many options, and you have all this data. But again, every it's it's also I think very individualized, um, and I think al- also within the the gen- genomic profile now what we're seeing is resistance. We're seeing acquired resistance where. You give the drug, it, there's some shrinkage, but then the, the tumor is so smart that it, 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 it develops these other escape pathways. That's why I don't think that one drug targeting one mutation, I think, is, is, is always going to be the answer. It's going to have to be a multifactorial Correct. approach. Yeah. All right. We've got Michelle on the line from Kaneohe. Michelle, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks I for calling. I just had a question regarding, you guys were talking about Radiation exposure to the head and neck area, especially as we get older and as we are women, we seem to have more problems with thyroid cancers. Does that include things like dental x-rays? So I, I, can, I can clarify that. But so when I mean, so there's two different types of radiation exposure. One is if you've actually had, say, a cancer-directed therapy um, to to something, say somebody had a lymphoma in, in the neck, for example, and they had radiation to the area, and that's typically what we call external beam. So over time, 20 years later, that may uh, stimulate your thyroid and, and a, a tumor may develop. So that's different from, say, getting radiation exposure, say, someone in Chernobyl in 1986, where, where you know, it's not something that's completely directed at the thyroid, where um, it, it really affects your whole body. It's just that our thyroid is one of the more sensitive organs in our body when it comes to, to radiation. So I hope that clarifies that. Um, you it's, ha- it's a great question, you yeah, know, the dental x-rays. Because I've actually gone and had dental x-rays done, and the dentist will put on that little that little neck thing that right. protects the thyroid, and yeah. they'll put on some other, some other area to protect the rest of the body from radiation. Good news is the amount of radi- radiation in a dental x-ray, really small and tiny. Correct, it's slow. I mean, it's, it's actually a really little amount. There's more radiation exposure when you have either treatment, therapeutic radiation, like you mentioned for cancer, but also if you're having other types of scans and things done. So dental x-rays, tiny bit of radiation, yeah, you could protect your thyroid. It's not something that, given the amount of radiation exposure, that you have to be really obsessive about, but it is something to know about. So it's a good point, Michelle. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for your question. All right. That was a, it's, a really good, it's a really good question because these days, you know, when I go to see the dentist and I go every six months, I do now. I've learned my lesson. But uh, when I go to see the dentist they often will do this exam and they'll say, okay, we're going to check for lymph nodes under your neck area. And then I'll notice that he kind of checks around the thyroid area. So, you know, dentists are pretty aware of this. Sure. Um, but also dental x-rays luckily are done so infrequently and they're so small as far as the dose of radiation that it's not a huge concern, but it's a good point. Correct. Radiation is radiation. So we were talking a little bit about the complexity of treating treating tumors with one medication to address a genetic mutation because maybe there's five genetic mutations. We don't know who's driving this. Do you foresee at some point we might be treating people with five different treatments for the genetic mutation, trying to just figure out which one could be involved? Or I mean, it, it's almost like that could be the future, but is that any more specific than what we do now? You know, I think that will be pretty difficult to give that many different drugs yeah. for, for all, all those mutations. The reason why is that even if it's an or see most of the what we call are targeted therapies that, that focus against, uh, you know, one genomic mutation, genetic mutation, there's, there can be side effects. So, I mean, just to take, if you had to take 
you know, multiple different uh, pills to hit different, you know, different uh, genomic mutations. I think just the side effects would be difficult. What what I see happening, which is what we're seeing now, <clears throat> is actually, um, you know, in, in with other solid tumors such as lung cancer and melanoma, is just using the immune system. So there are some trials now looking at, um, you know, see how some of these anti-PD-1 uh, agents, so what we use for melanoma and, and lung cancer, may be potentially effective for, for thyroid cancer. So I see the immune system playing a role, um, and I see just, just it's really combinatorial therapy, combination of therapy. Uh, I'll tell you that most thyroid cancer is treatable with surgery, radioactive iodine, and just having, you know, enough thyroid hormone uh, on board. But, you know, in up to 20%, 30% of cases, it does come back and it can be developed. The patients can become radioactive iodine uh, insensate, meaning they just they just won't respond to iodine. So those are very difficult patients to treat. Well, sure, because that might have been in their initial treatment course is that they had the surgery and had the radioactive iodine. And just as, uh, you know, nature has unique ways of developing ways around it. I mean, we think about resistance to antibiotics. It's because bacteria get smart and figure out how to resist that particular antibiotic. And so cancer cells can become resistant to some of the same treatment. And once that happens, it makes things, like you mentioned, quite a bit more complicated because the, I don't want to call it easy, but the easy treatment with radioactive iodine can't be done anymore because it's not going to target those cells. So you kind of have to find it's like those cells have locked front doors. How can you get past the front door? Can we creatively find some other pathway to be able to find that cell and then get to that particular area and see if we can do something therapeutic about it? Right. And the two two drugs that are FDA approved right now to treat that scenario is serafinib and linvatinib. And they're basically pills that help to control the growth of it, but none of it cures anybody, meaning it doesn't kill every single cancer cell. So um, you, you do you, you have some response and you have even disease stabilization, but none of it completely cures or eradicates everything. So I, I think we, we have a lot of work to do still in, in thyroid cancer to understand it and, and better treat it. Absolutely, as we do with cancer in general. Lots of, hopefully lots of great new things that we're going to discover in, I'm hoping, the near future. But we've been working on this for decades, and it certainly is a process that we need to continue. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak from Straub Medical Center here in the studio with my friend, Dr. Shane Morita. He's an endocrine and cancer surgeon. He's an expert at Queens Medical Center. He also works at the UH Cancer Center. And when we come back, we're going to talk about clinical trials. One of the things that we do if we have tumors, like we mentioned, that are difficult to treat, is that there's always the possibility, well, not always, but often the possibility that someone one might be able to participate in something we call a clinical trial. What is it and how does it benefit the individual? We're going to learn about that when we come back. Remember, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. If you've had a history of thyroid cancer or know someone who has, we'd love to hear about what journey brought them, hopefully, to a successful treatment and a healthier life from that point onwards. Remember, you can join us. We'll be right back in just a minute. We all need people we can depend on, people who will be there for us through thick and thin. HPR's most valuable players are our sustainers, the folks whose ongoing monthly contributions support the station's work every broadcast day. Let us know we can count on you, too. 
Set up your monthly gift of $10 a month by visiting us online or by calling our membership team at 955-8821 during regular business hours. Climate change is a big deal for indigenous people around the world. They're the people that pay the price because they directly live off the land. A visit to Rwanda might surprise you with what people there can teach us. What I saw that is that beauty is not optional, but a strategy for survival. And hear how Berlin keeps reinventing itself on this week's Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ulupono Initiative, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Shane Morita. He's an endocrine and cancer surgeon. He's an expert at Queens Medical Center, also has ties to the UH Cancer Center. And today we're talking about thyroid cancer. September is National Thyroid Cancer Awareness Month. And although this is often a type of cancer that, if caught early, has a huge success rate of eradicating it, there are still folks who get it maybe get it diagnosed in advanced stages, or have cancer that is resistant to the primary sources of treatment. Now, when that happens, sometimes they get involved in something we call clinical trials. We're going to talk about that some more in just a minute. But remember, if you have a question about your thyroid, about thyroid function, about risk factors for thyroid, and what are the risks for cancer, you can join us, 941-3689, toll-free 3689. Now, before the break, we were talking about if you have radioactive iodine resistant cancer, that it becomes hard to find it in the body, hard to figure out where it is, and hard to treat it. Now, in certain situations, people might be interested if we've exhausted all of the treatments that you mentioned and they're still not improving in something we call a clinical trial. What exactly is that? Basically, a clinical trial is a study to determine whether or not uh, there's different types of clinical trials that we can phase, but if you talk about a therapeutic clinical trial, meaning trying to determine uh, sort of different efficacies or even safety. So, for example, a phase one clinical trial is you're just trying to determine what is the safest dose. So there's a lot of what we call dose escalation, trying to adjust to see, well, what dose can we give where the side effects are going to be tolerable? So, you, so essentially in a phase one, you're looking to see what is uh, toxicity? What is what's safe? Uh, a phase two, you're trying to determine: is it going to be effective? Is it going to be therapeutic? But it's it's again it may not be against what we call the gold standard, which would be a phase three. Phase three is what is the gold standard? What is the standard therapy that's given? The best drug, for example. Let's give another drug and go side by side and say which one would be better. And so the idea of doing clinical trials is that. For all those treatments that are out there right now, a lot of those treatments have been through trials. Correct. So people have volunteered to be part of these clinical trials where we're trying to determine what's the correct dose of medication versus side effects. And in some cases, people can see a therapeutic benefit correct. in phase one clinical trials. Not always, but often, you know, in some cases they can. Phase two is, does the medicine even work? So if it works, great, let's do some more studies with it. If we find out that this is a great medicine, nobody has any side effects, but it doesn't do anything, we're probably going to stop at phase two. Correct. 
So then we go to phase three, where we compare new treatment and old treatment, and which one works better. Are they equivalent? Are they the same? Sometimes the efficacy or how well they work might be exactly the same, but new treatment may have fewer side effects. And that alone could be a benefit to those people who need to have that type of treatment. Who should enroll in clinical trials? When you see people in your office, who do you encourage to take a look at these types of trials? You know, there's different types of trials. You know, um, really every patient, if there's a clinical trial um, that's applicable to them and their type of cancer and they... Should they look for the phase three? Should they look for phase two? You know, whatever's available. Whatever's out there. Phase two, phase phase two or phase three. um, If it's something where, um, you you know, they're willing to... Um, be I, I mean, you know, the thing about a trial is that you have to go through there. There's 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 a kind of a screening that you need to go through to make sure you hit all all the certain uh, criteria. So they're willing to really spend the time to do that, which can be done fairly expeditiously. I would say, um, I really encourage all my patients to. to and there's a structure to it. So correct. if you get approved to go in a clinical trial, let's say they're doing a trial on thyroid cancer, a brand new treatment, and it's a phase three. So we know that it works. It has minimal side effects. We're going to compare it to some previous thyroid cancer treatment. You'd have to be really strict and follow the protocol, correct. which may mean you have to make visits once every several weeks. You have to do certain tests. You have to do them at a certain time. So you really have to be willing to go and do things strictly, quote, by the book Correct. And to be part of this clinical trial Correct. with the idea that if you're going to try and compare a new treatment versus an old treatment, you want to try and eliminate as many variables as you can. You don't want to necessarily have people take it, whatever the medicine is, sort of when they feel like it, or it should be every eight hours, but they do it every 12 hours, or it should be twice a week and they do it once, you really have to compare apples and apples. You have to really be able to say, okay, it was the same the same therapeutic dose. It was the same type of particular individual. There's genetic variations. There's ethnic variations. There's gender variations. So you really have to be able to compare those two things carefully. What are some of the things you can think about in your practice that have come about because of clinical trials? Are there any discoveries that you know of in the last however many years that you say, yeah, there was a trial for that, and this is what it showed? You know, it's it's funny. Um, when I was in the lab uh, 10 years ago at NCR, I remember giving mice some, some of these medications that are now FDA-approved. So and you actually started doing the initial I, bench research. Or, or doing some, or using some of these agents, and you see 10 you know, years later, it's been... Now been we're doing it in humans. Using, it, you know, using okay. some, some of these drugs that are actually FDA-approved. You know, I, I remember um, giving uh, you know, um, my mice sunitinib, which is a, a multi-kinase inhibitor, and, and lo and behold, it's, it's, you know, it's used for different types of cancers, including kidney cancer um, and uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. So... Um, I think really clinical trials are extremely valuable. It does, um, it, it does, it allows us to really get the, the novel information that we need, and really to, to progress. I mean, we always want to, you know, improve and give options for our patients. Well, and if some someone were to say to you, "But doc, does this work?" Your answer to that is based on. Yes, and here's the trial. Here's how we've shown we've shown that this actually does provide a benefit. Right. I mean, that's how these new treatments are approved is is based on science and based on data and based on prior studies. 
So you mentioned FDA approval. The Food and Drug Administration has a really high standard by which they will approve medications. And that requires that you go through those phases of trials, that you prove it's a safe dose, that it's efficacious, and that it has to provide some advantage over current treatment. Right. I mean, you had mentioned what... I mean, all those uh, sort of criteria is extremely important. And you had mentioned um, what's what's a drug, for example, that, you know, that really, you know, I thought, well, has really made, you know, become, I would say, effective or, you know, an option that kind of changed the landscape. I would tell you Vemurafenib that was FDA approved in 2011 from melanoma because that really changed the way we looked at melanoma and spurned more studies, and now there's more studies with immunotherapy and, and using targeted therapy. So, um, Yeah, the know, treatment for melanoma has dramatically changed. In t- I have since 2011, there, you know, eight, there's eight drugs that have been FDA-approved for melanoma. Which is incredible. I've got, I've got an uncle who um, is not, you know, he was married to my aunt, and he's not with us now, mm-hmm. and he passed away before all these trials. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for him, once he had melanoma, and it was metastatic, and it wasn't responsive to traditional chemotherapy, we didn't have these other drugs available. It just didn't exist. So in the last five years, now there's eight new treatments. Right. So when we talk about do clinical trials help? Yes. And in fact, in our lifetime, we can see this. Absolutely. And, you know, and for, for the Achilles heel, what we talked about, the radioactive iodine refractory thyroid cancer, and that's why we've had serafinib and um, linvatinib since 2011, you know, over that just short window of being FDA approved. So... Um, I think clinical trials are extremely valuable and provide options for patients. Now, how do they find out about them? I mean, do all oncologists, do all cancer surgeons know about all the clinical trials? Is there a website people can go to to find out more about them? You know, um, with with our collaboration with UH Cancer Center at Queens, you know, we have you know website and we have you know just being involved actively in going to some of these meetings and just uh, collaborating with UH Cancer Center. I mean. That's how you become knowledgeable of what options are, are out there. And we have a team at Queens that will also, you know, be working concert with the physicians and other ancillary folks to say, you know, this may be something that could be, um, you know, this patient may be qualified, say somebody for thyroid cancer, somebody for pancreatic cancer, for example. And we also have, you know, I think I mentioned before, but we have tumor boards that we that we regularly meet and we'll go over a particular site and and. And you know, we have other personnel that would say, oh, maybe this potentially you know, could be available. So, so essentially, oncologists who practice in the field of cancer have easy ways that they can look up to see if a particular individual would qualify for a clinical trial. And I know that the UH Cancer Center, if you just put them in any search engine you want, Google or Bing or all that kind of stuff out there, you can actually go to their website and they actually list, here are some of the clinical trials. And you can go to the National Cancer Institute, the NCI website, and they also list, is there a clinical trial? Right. There's a a website called clinicaltrials.gov. Well, now that makes it even simpler, clinicaltrials.gov. I'm glad you remembered that. 
It must have been hard because it <laughs> sounds like it is. So you can go to that website and find out are there clinical trials for that particular condition that Correct. you have. And that's really ideal. I am all about patient empowerment. If you know your diagnosis and you're able to do some of the investigation about it and become more educated about whatever the diagnosis is, whether it be thyroid cancer, melanoma, something as easy to treat as like hypertension, whatever it is, the more you know, the greater you're going to be able to control that condition or understand what your doctors are trying to do to help you. And being part of that team is extremely important. And a lot of cancer centers, and I know that Straub Medical Center does this. I know Queens Medical Center does this. They have patient navigators. They have folks that will actually help individuals diagnosed with cancer deal with all their appointments and all their treatments and all their medicines and insurance authorization and all sorts of different things to really try and make it easier for the individual to focus on their health while we take care of everything in the back end. And that's been one of those other things that, you know, it's one thing to do a really great job of being a scientist and then treat patients day after day with particular medicines. It's another thing to have that expertise so you can focus on what you do best, surgery and doing the research and that somebody else can deal with and help someone out with how do I get to my to my treatments? Absolutely. How do I take my medicine? It, it takes it's honestly, a collaborative effort. Absolutely. And it takes a village to take care of one patient. It really it really does. Well, in these days, I think medically we're realizing how many different team members need to be part of the village, and we're getting them all on board, and hopefully getting bringing everybody to the table. You mentioned tumor board is one area where a lot of different medical centers will go through the particular diagnosis that an individual has, and then they'll have different people, the surgeon, the radiation specialist, the medical oncologist who might administer chemotherapy, the pathologist, the person who read the slides. They'll all come together at one session, and they'll discuss each person's issue individually, and that's where the best treatment plan that really is a collaborative effort of all these different physicians is brought to the table. And then that is discussed with individuals at a later doctor visit. So it's really it's really an opportunity for everyone to be reassured that it's not just one doctor saying, here's what we're going to do. It is this collaborative team approach. And that's one of the most important things that people could hopefully be reassured by, that it really is all of us working together. Now, we've talked about thyroid, how it can be diagnosed, why it's important. Are there any treatments on the horizon that you can think about? I know we've gotten some new treatments thus far, but where do you see the treatment of thyroid cancer going maybe in the next 5, 10, 20 years? I think um, I think the immune system will play a role, like similarly to how we've, we've sort of changed um, paradigm shift more toward immunotherapy for lung cancer. And we definitely, the melanoma, you know, was the poster child. I, I see the immune system playing a role. So some of these agents that we that we give to uh, modulate the immune system. Um, so stimulate a person's I, own I, body I, 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 to I help recognize so. and fight the tumor. I think that's going to be, I think that's going um, to become, uh, you know, something as, as, a, as a viable option, um, you know, 10, 10 years from now. I think it, it we you know luckily we've come so far from even when I was in school that you know with the treatment of various different conditions we now have this whole brand new field of these different genetic particular targeted treatments and now we're hearing about some of the immune system treatments that we're hearing about a lot of these different options that weren't around when I was in school and so it really 
proves to me and it proves to hopefully a lot of other folks as well that medicine is really constantly advancing, that there's great new treatments that are going to be out there and that the whole point of doing scientific discovery for treating cancer in this case is that some of the stuff that you did at the National Cancer Institute working in the bench, in the science lab, doing these sorts of treatments, you're now treating patients with that. That's got to that's gotta be fulfilling in a way to know that you've watched that particular treatment go from, we're going to experiment to see if it even works, to now I can see it help save lives. That's got to really give you a thrill. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the studies, the experiments I did weren't directly, you know, led to that. But I mean, you, you know, you just the fact that using just just. I, I think it's always important, um, you know, as a physician to, and, and and I know you do this, but you always have to do what what can you, there, there's always a challenge of what can be done better for the patient in the future. And that's why clinical trials are extremely important. So even just thinking of uh, hypotheses or just thinking of looking things from a different perspective as far as, you know, does certain cancers, and we've, you know, discussed our ethnic differences here in, in Hawaii for different types, but, I mean, not always looking at it from nationally what, what folks are doing, but also what we can contribute locally with our population. Well, and that's the unique thing. We talk about being a melting pot. That not only means that we have people of different genetic vari- variations here in the islands, but we've also combined those. You know, we have that term hapa, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. The idea being that now we have this multi-ethnic population where there are some people who are 100% Japanese or Chinese or Filipino or Hawaiian, but there's also a, a large number of people that are a combination of everything. So some of the studies that we may look at that are done in other locations where it's sort of a, a very uniform genetic population uh, ethnically, that may not actually be the same statistics that we can apply to our uh, multifaceted population here in the islands. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think we, we are looked upon uh, favorably, I think, when when we're approached for clinical trials because we do have that. A little bit diverse, of everything. Diverse population, so. More than a lot of other locations in the United States or in Correct. the world just because of reality. So I love the website that you mentioned because it's so hard to remember. I think I actually remember it. If you want to know if there's a clinical trial available for your particular condition, it's clinicaltrials.gov. Correct. And they'll go and you can you can query what type of cancer and, and it will go and look at, uh, help you, guide you as far as different, different locales. And we do a lot of these clinical trials locally here in the islands. Correct. We, I mean, there's quite a bit of options. Um, but again, you know, the goal is to just bring in more clinical trials because the more clinical trials, the more uh, options, the less folks have to travel. Which is one of the ideas is to really provide top-notch, top-quality cancer care right here in the islands in the most comprehensive way that we can. There's a lot of excellent expertise with both yourself at the uh, Queens Medical Center, also at the Cancer Center. And there's, there's a real good reason why we need to support the Cancer Center because of the great work that it's doing. It's bringing major national treatment right here locally at home, right down the road. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being part of our show today, for coming back to talk about thyroid cancer. And I'm sure we're going to have you again because, you know, melanoma is another one of your areas of expertise. And you have a broad variety of things that you just 
bring such a great level of knowledge to the table. So thanks for coming again. Thank you. All right. If you want to hear this show again, you can head to our podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org and follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Thanks to Dr. Shane Morita from Queens Medical Center and the UH Cancer Center. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Thank you.